This is an ABC podcast. G'day, glads and pods coming from Gadigal Country, another week of Late Night Live. You will recall that last week I revealed that uh, King Charles III had, uh, well, had a quickie divorce with Camilla, had proposed to Laura Tingle, and she was heading to London for two ceremonies, simultaneous ceremonies, that is her wedding and her coronation. But something went wrong. I'm not going to invade her privacy. We won't even mention it when she joins me shortly, but... I think she refused to sign the prenup. So, Laura Tingle, back with us. And uh, later, we're going to talk about the Farmers' Party and the way it has completely transformed Dutch politics and then talk about the mysterious circles in the Australian desert. A fascinating story. But first, Vale Barry. I could write a book about Barry Humphreys, but I promise I won't, in fact... I find that uh, still feeling the repercussions of his death, I can barely write a tweet. I haven't been able to pen any of the requested obits and uh, I've had to decline any number of interviews to talk about him because I've got so many memories, too many memories, and I have to say mixed feelings. There's no question that Barry was the greatest genius comic genius this country has ever or will ever produce. He is and was beyond brilliant. In fact, I I have described him quite properly, I think, as the cleverest person I ever knew. And I didn't just know Barry. I knew two of his wives. I I met his uh, formidable mother. We travelled the world together, made three movies, on and on. On and on it goes, but uh, there were problems in our friendship and we parted company over his politics, which I found uh, quite appalling. Perhaps it's my fault. In the early 70s, I introduced him to a young Rupert Murdoch in, in London and these days he kept turning up at uh, Rupert's weddings and birthday parties, so I hold myself to blame. A very gifted very troubled human being and uh, my heart goes out to his family. And now the Aspidistra returns. Laura, welcome back. We won't mention your uh, your romantic life. Um, how are you? I'm fine, Philip. I'm fine. I don't know why you would throw me into such a revolting speculation, but there we go. Oh, well, I'm, you know, I have impeccable sources. Now, the last time you and I were chatting was about a, almost a 400 billion worth of submarines and now we're addressing the missile gap. Missiles, yes, um, shooting things at, um, at people from a great distance. So this was uh, this Defence Strategic Review in some ways is sort of the... Um, the uh, cut, is it the cut, cut for the horse or one of those sorts of things, Philip? This is supposed to be the overarching review of where strategy is going to go on defence, uh, except they announced AUKUS first, which is just one arm of it, really. But um, the big announcement today really focused on the nature of the threat Australia faces, which I've got to say is a little bit confused, given what they were saying to us just a few weeks ago, as you mentioned, with AUKUS um, and what we should do about it. The really sort of pointy bit, Uh, no pun intended, is about um, a much greater focus on missile defence and about how we have to do this straight away. We have to have lots of missiles for the the Navy, for the the Army. We have to change what the Army does uh, and, you know, change what, um, how planes are configured and what what, uh, weapons they carry. All those things. So lots of toys for boys, but I understand uh, that existing programs will be curtailed or wound back. Well, some of them will be, Philip, but I think um, the sort of it's a striking given how much they were saying that we we're going to spend on AUKUS that they weren't really emphasising how much they'd spend on this other 
you know, significant arm of rearranging uh, the military, um, not just on missiles, but just on, on rearranging the Army, Navy and Air Force, um, you know, which is also a really substantial investment. Now, they're going to do a bit of a dance of the seven veils on this between now and the budget, and they're going to announce individual uh, elements of the strategy and how much it's going to cost. But I think... Sorry, beyond... how much is it going to cost? I understand we're talking at least uh, another $8 billion. Yes, Well, they're sort of saying $19 billion, but they'll have some offsets which will offset that and things like that. But I suppose what I would say is, compared to AUKUS, it's absolutely peanuts. The more important thing, I think, is the questions that uh, the strategic review uh, raises. For example, the fact that there aren't enough people in the ADF, there aren't enough people in um, the uh, public service who support the ADF. The majority, I've, I've got to say, I find this shocking, Philip, the majority of the workforce in the defence sector are actually contractors, um, whether that's, you know, at the sort of level of providing support services in the field, but uh, predominantly in Canberra, in Russell, which is the big suburb, um, suburb which is all defence most of the people you will encounter actually work for a cons one of the big consulting firms um, and they have all the work contracted out. Now, given the nature of defence work and given the need to maintain some sort of institutional memory, I don't think that this is really um, a good idea, let alone value for money. So I, had no, I had no idea and find that quite chilling. Yeah. It, well, takes, us, it takes us back to the invasion of Iraq. Yeah, I mean, it, it's... it's, it's, it, it's you know, sort of 80% or something of the of the entire workforce, both in the defence forces themselves and, and as I said, in the in the bureaucracy. So, I mean, that's that's an issue. But there are all these problems. I mean, they're talking, of course. You know, defence is famously terrible at um, procurement. Uh, now they're saying that they're going to have to change that. That the defence forces can't just look for the perfect solution anymore. They've just got to get something, anything that's you know 80 or 90 percent right. Um, but it also just says things that in some ways aren't a surprise, but it is sort of weird to hear them being said out loud. For example, they're saying most of the really excellent ideas that um, come up in uh, the Defence Forces for procurement come from the bottom up. You know, somebody in um, the Navy decides that what they want for their next toy is X, that there's very little sort of um, conceptual view from the top, whether that's from the top of the government or from the top of the military itself, of saying... Well, strategically, what we need is, you know, submarines or planes or whatever it is. You know, can you make it make it happen, guys? It's it's the other way around, and it becomes it, it's not it's not sort of a procurement uh, that is the purchase of um, hardware is not done in any sort of overarching strategic framework, which is somewhat disconcerting. So there there are a lot of really big problems uh, in the military, which in some ways aren't a surprise, but the whole uh, thrust of this is, look, we don't have 10 years to think about this now. You know, there are there are big threats coming up and we've got to deal with them straight away. Now, um, th there's this uh, there's an incongruity. Some of the uh, experts we had on 7.30 were talking about this tonight. There, there's, they're saying that the long-held defence of Australia doctrine, which was basically that um, the strategy in defence was that you were trying to protect Australia from attack on the mainland, uh, should be replaced by this uh, national defence uh, doctrine, which is essentially that we don't think we're going to get invaded, but we've got all these national interests in the region uh, which we have to defend. And you can read that from anything from, you know, a, a conflict over Taiwan to something happening in the Pacific or uh, somebody who, of course, remains unnamed um, in sort of making a nuisance of themselves on the northwest shelf. But there is this incongruity between them talking about that, but basically looking at a strategy which is all about um, emphasising uh, our um, big defence bases in northern Australia uh, and in a way that sort of basically still seems to be mainly talking about defending people approaching Australia or uh, approaching our near sea lanes and neighbours. Laura, when did the strategic review begin? When did they start the review? Philip, it's it's been it's been a very quick review. I think it was August last year, uh, which is pretty fast. Now, you know, in the past we've had these occasional defence white papers, uh, which sometimes you know maybe once every ten years or maybe once every five years. It's they haven't been completely regular. Um, and what the government said this time is, look, 
we, ca we can't have you mucking around. Uh, we just need a really quick uh, review. And then what we're proposing is that uh, there will then be um, a review every two years just to see how things are changing because uh, the defence situation has become so dynamic and so concerning. I'll tell you something else that's been quick and that's the... Uh, the uh her Majesty's opposition expressing great disappointment in Albanese's response. Yes, well, that's always a, a pretty astonishing when, you know, the, the former government's only 12 months from being in government, but apparently the new guys aren't doing things quite so quickly. One of the, one of the problems uh, that the government says they've got is that between 2020 and last year, the uh, former government spent about or committed to spend about $42 billion but didn't actually have any means of funding that. So they're saying that their hands are a bit tied in terms of how much they can actually do as a result. But, um, no, the coalition, I thought, was sort of taking um, a lot of reasonably cheap shots at this today. I mean, there, there are lots of With things... With missiles can... or just uh, handguns? Oh, yeah, sorry. I'm, uh, sorry. You use all these military analogies and then you suddenly realise you're in all sorts of... All sorts of trouble. Sorry about that, listeners. But anyway, they 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 they, they haven't really been making any huge strategic um, uh, critiques of this review today. They've been um, they've been pretty ordinary sorts of um, you know po populist criticisms. And I think um, you know that there are a lot there are lots of things you can say uh, or question about this review and its findings. Um, you know, yes, there is a question about whether if things are as serious as the review suggests they are, whether the, the government and the review itself are doing enough to fix them. But, you know, there are, there are basic problems like they're saying, well, we've got to get lots of missiles, but nobody's exactly sure where we're going to get them from because the suggestion is that we should manufacture them in Australia. We don't have that capability. Uh, and at the moment, there's basically a bit of a worldwide shortage of missiles because everybody's been using them in Ukraine and everybody suddenly wants to have lots of missiles. So, you know, there's, there's a, there, there are, shall we say, capability gaps, Philip, between wanting lots of missiles and actually being able to get them. That's a different sort of missile gap, isn't it? A capability mm. one. Now, mm. Elbow said, we cannot fall back on old assumptions, in parenthesis, I say it sounds like they are, but we must build the, the strength in our security by seeking to shape the future rather than waiting for the future to shape us. Can you translate that <laughs> for me? It sounds like something that was written in defence, doesn't it? Um, I've got no idea what the Prime Minister was saying there, but apparently, you know, it's all a bit of a worry. That would be, that would be my take on it. But um, certainly, you know, the government has the fear of God in it, I think, um, as a result of whatever they've been told by the spooks and defence, and they're trying to not only do lots of stuff, but be seen to be doing lots of stuff. But um, I think, you know, there, there is... It does seem very confusing that um, when they announced AUKUS, the clear implication was that we were going to be having all these submarines as part of a coordinated approach to support what was essentially a US-led position to contain, um, in the words of Paul, Paul Keating, or alternatively challenge um, uh, China in the South China Sea. And that's not quite what they're talking about in this defence strategic review. So if people are confused, they have every right to be. I have to go back to this point you made that uh, the shortage of labour extends to the army. Here we are celebrating the uh, Anzac Day tomorrow. You would have thought there would have been queues around the block to join the services. Well, not really. I mean, this is actually a bit of a worldwide trend, Philip. Um, I know uh, when I was in Germany last year, they had something like... Um, I've, I'm, I think this is right. There was something like 20,000 unfilled positions in the German army alone. Um, New Zealand, which isn't exactly known for having a huge military, um, they've got all sorts of shortages in their military. And in fact, uh, we signed a new deal with them last week to help them fill their shortages in their uh, in their ranks. So um, it, it, there's an ongoing trend where people have generally uh, not been paying their defence forces enough. There has been a lot of contracting out um, and it's just not been a really attractive place to be, particularly, you know, nobody really wants to be in a submarine for any lot, uh, length of period of time. So it's one of those things where even if you wanted to turn it around tomorrow and get lots of people in, uh, because of the security considerations, you can't just 
import a lot of migrants. You know, the general view would be that you'd want to be putting citizens into these jobs. Uh, and, you know, you just, they're just not there. Like the rest of the economy, there just aren't enough people for the jobs at the moment. Is there enough money to pay the bills? The budget's coming up. Well, I think the, the with all the sort of um, shuffling of money and uh, delaying of some projects and things, the suggestion is that there's not a huge amount of money in the next four years that will um, that will sort of be at that will add to the budget bottom uh, or, or, or subtract from the budget bottom line. Uh, but without a doubt, these things all make uh, represent really huge commitments, you know, into the medium term and. Um, if if they are serious about it, they're probably going to have to spend even more, and we don't really know where the money's coming for that. And there's no uh, nothing for people on uh, Newstart. Uh, well, look, I don't know about Newstart, Philip. I think um, there's certainly uh, there's been all of this push uh, from the Women's uh, Equality Task Force and also from David Pocock's committee, if we can call it that, um, which was looking at equality issues. Um, I think the uh, indications last week were sort of tending to downplay the suggestion that the government do, would do anything in those really crucial areas like um, increasing uh, the single or changing the rules of the single parents uh, support payment so that um, people could get it beyond the, you know, the current age for their kids and would get it till um, their kids were older. Um, there are signs that the government will go some way on addressing that, which is a pretty crucial issue. Whether they do anything on job seeker or not, I'm not entirely sure on, but I think there will probably be a suite of some sorts of measures to address the really t terrible problems we've got where so many welfare payments leave so many people below the poverty line in Australia. Charlie's loss, our gain. It's great that you're back, Laura, and I want you to know that in your absence we have been watering your Aspidistra. My guest, Chief Political Correspondent 730 and the newly elected staff, by the staff, ABC board member. And speaking of Aspidistras, reminds me of agriculture and that's a good segue for our next story coming up in just a second. All those tulips and those twirling windmills remind us that, of course, the Netherlands has always been a, a proud farming nation and uh, the Dutch agricultural sector is now a vast network of high-tech greenhouses and livestock farms which have turned the Netherlands into, and I did not know this, the second biggest agricultural exporter on the planet. So imagine the reaction when a few years ago the Dutch government announced plans to halve the nitrogen emissions by 2030. Enter stage right, the Dutch Farmers' Party, or BBB. Now, last month, the Insurgent Party won a shock victory and a shocking victory in the country's Senate elections. It's... Um, a situation that's being watched closely in the rest of Europe as uh, as the region tries to um, pursue a net zero climate strategy. My guest now is Rick Ratte, and he's a political reporter with NRC, one of the country's leading newspapers based in The Hague. Rick, welcome. I understand that it's a bicameral party, a reps and a senate rather like our own. That's correct. Um, good evening, Philip, and thanks for having me. So what's interesting about the, the BBB is just a shocking growth. Um, they joined the um, lower house of parliament only two years ago uh, with one seat out of 150. And now they've made the jump to become the biggest party in the regional and Senate elections in just the span of two years. Well, we'll look at the reasons for this rise and rise. But first, a bit more background. Who's the current prime minister? So the current prime minister is um, Mark Rutte, who is a liberal and is also one of the longest serving prime ministers in Europe. So he's, he's gained quite a bit of a reputation and credibility as a, a European problem solver. I take, it he's, no more, yeah, I take it he's no relation. 
Uh, no, he's not a relation. That's that's always something that's useful to point out when I'm doing my work here in The Hague as well. It's interesting that he's he's gained his reputation within Europe as a uh, a problem solver uh, at the European level. And now at home, he's facing this uh, crisis that might well bring down his own government. Now, his outfit is called the People's Party for Freedom and Democracy, which sounds a little bit like camouflage for a right-winger. Um, he is a he is a right winger. Dutch parties are pretty good at uh, at long and complicated names, and we uh, we have a lot of them as well. So I mentioned we have 150 seats. Yeah, we have. Uh, I think if I got the right number, it's 20 parties. Changes about every few months or so when when someone splits off. So we have this large number of parties makes forming coalitions pretty difficult. And then all of a sudden we have this new upset party that just sort of breaks the mold and, uh, and and comes out of nowhere to become the biggest of all of them. I'd like you to tell me the background to the BBB. How did the Dutch Farmers Party happen? I think it's good to take a step back and look at that um, that big farming culture um, and this big farming economy that we've had. You already mentioned it's it's grown way beyond the the tulips and the windmills. Um, at first, partly out of uh, worries over food security right after the Second World War. Then uh, for more commercial prospects, uh, it's a huge exporting country and all of this in a country that is uh, smaller than Tasmania. I had to look that up. Um, and so we've grown this uh, this agricultural sector. Uh, it's, it's just grown and grown. And essentially that's come as a, at a price tag for environmental um, an environmental price tag uh, with consequences for the animals, uh, for nature, for water quality uh, and the like. And we face these limits again and again over the past few decades. Um, but rather than change the agriculture when these uh, limits were reached, uh, the government has simply changed the limits so that the agricultural sector could expand once more. And so what we're facing now is suddenly a moment uh, in which that seems to have ground to a standstill, all caused by, uh, at first, a court ruling uh, that blocked any further expansions of those limits, and then by the government itself saying that they were now finally taking on the big challenge um, of transitioning agriculture to to make it greener. But of course, that's been quite a challenge with such a big farming sector. Um, not that many farmers, but a big sector with lots of vested interests. Um, and lots uh, of well, sen- hang on, that's, a, that's, a, that's an well. important point. Not that many farmers. So we're talking industrial agriculture, aren't we? Exactly. Yeah. So say over the last 20 years, the number of farmers has halved. There's only about 50,000 of them left, uh, while the number of, say, cows per dairy farm has doubled. So all these um, these farms have grown bigger while the number of farmers has uh, has, has been shrinking uh, ever further. I understand its leader is, uh, well, in a sense, a colleague of yours, a former journalist. That's correct. That's Caroline van der Plus, and it's Caroline in Dutch as well. She's half Irish, half Dutch, used to be a journalist and then founded uh, the BBB together with a marketing agency. So it's also been prone to accusations of being uh, nothing but a marketing vehicle for that reason. So, okay, she wins a single seat in the lower house at an election two years ago. Correct. And then within two years, uh, she gets here. What I think hap- what I think has happened there is she's a very um, colorful figure. So she's been featured all <laughs> over the country in talk shows, on the radio, and she's really been able to build an image not so much of uh, a marketing person, but of someone who is really in touch with the people, not just in the countryside, but in the cities as well. But as we speak at this time, the BBB still holds just that one seat in the lower house. Yeah. Um, and so there, her power is rather limited, but she does have a lot of influence uh, in other parts of the system mostly uh, in the Senate, where she'll uh, be the biggest party and she might be able to uh, to help the coalition parties um, to gain a majority, uh, but also in regional governments because they are elected at the same time. And these regional governments are actually the very governments that are supposed to really make that uh, agricultural transition work. They are supposed to reduce uh, nitrogen emissions because that's what we're talking about here. They are supposed to, to make that work and now they have... 
a party there that will be leading negotiations over forming those regional governments that is pretty much opposed to any sort of forceful, harsh legislation. So industrial industrial agriculture, particularly of cattle, tends to produce a hell of a lot of nitrogen. And in Australia, we've got a phenomenon that there is a, a a political party that ostensibly represents the rural sector and their passionate climate change denialists. Is that a factor in your country? Um, it's definitely a thing. and But I think this is where it gets really interesting is that we've seen various parties sort of taking on the establishment over the past few years, including the party that actually won um, the regional and Senate elections four years ago. Uh, was a completely different party uh, also came out of nowhere and was much uh, more, uh, went way deeper into its cli- climate denialism, so to say. And what's interesting about this uh, party, about the BBB, is that they essentially endorse and embrace the idea that, yes, climate change is real, but are simply much more conservative in how they want to go about um, making policy on that. And I think that is also why the current coalition government has found it much harder to to sort of shut them out of the system. And part of the crisis, of course, is not just that, well, this party has grown bigger, but it was never a part of the coalition to start with. But these coalition parties now feel that they have to sort of respond to the, the signal uh, of this party Uh, turning into the biggest party. I hear distant applause, and it's coming from Donald Trump. (laughs) I think one one fascinating aspect of the party is that they're trying to um, make it very unclear where exactly they stand. I would say that they are generally on the right uh, and are sort of... I mean, this this party is only a couple of years old. They are, um, when it comes to some subjects and uh, some political matters, they are not even sure exactly where they stand. One example was that uh, just a few years ago, they suggested establishing a hotline for uh, people so that they could um, make a note when teachers in the education system were spouting blatant disinformation about the agricultural sector, which sounded a bit creepy, of course. And as soon as people took note of that plan, they withdrew it. So it's a party that's not entirely sure where it stands itself yet, but it's doing enough to uh, to to make the other parties very worried. I My mention of Trump wasn't entirely gratuitous because I know that he and Le, Le Pen have uh, tweeted their support for the farmers' protests. Correct, yes. And this is, um, in general, the farmer protests have been um, viewed by lots of people, not just in the Netherlands, but around the globe, as they've become this sort of uh, part of a global battle between, you could say, the left and the right, you could say, between uh, the establishment and the non-establishment. I remember there was a similar story just a couple of years ago with uh, the Canadian truckers that were taking on the government. And just like that story, this one with regards to the BBB and the farmer protest also became one in which, well, most of the true information sort of... um, Exits, uh, exits the stage, but then it becomes this part of a, a big new story about people taking on the government, which obviously is a simplification, but has been a very popular story, not just within the Netherlands. Rick, did you see this coming, the events of March? As it happened, um, I've been covering the nitrogen issue uh, for a couple of years now, and it struck me how uh, from the very beginning, uh, I kept hearing from people within and outside of the agricultural sector that this was... This one was different from any previous agricultural discussions. Obviously, like I said, we've we've had this uh, industry face its limits before, uh, and every single time what would happen was that the limits would simply change and be expanded so that the sector could keep growing. And what really changed here was that we had this court ruling that put a stop to uh, the government policy of, well, allowing that to happen. But the other thing was that the court ruling also uh, immediately had another effect which was that any other source of nitrogen emissions also had to be stopped, uh, right? Any other single form of nitrogen um, was prohibited just as much and could only be allowed to be restarted if something was done about this issue. So suddenly um, uh, the industry, the uh, traffic, uh, people just living their lives were feeling the consequences of something that until then really had only mattered mostly for farmers and environmental groups. And because of that, because everyone was was feeling the pinch, uh, suddenly everyone had to care about this issue. The surprising consequences being that most people have, or not most people, but a large number of people have uh, decided to 
to to show sympathy with the um, with the farmers uh, my, my, rather than be angry that nothing gets built anymore. For instance, my day job is a is as a farmer, and I produce I produce beef, which yes must must be producing a bit of nitrogen, but we produce it on <laughs> we produce ours on grass. I'm wondering what the the proposed uh, nitrogen caps would actually mean for cattle farming in your country because it's all done undercover? Uh, partly. We do still have some uh, some free-range cows, luckily. Uh, and this is where it gets gets a little technical, but there is a big debate over how much of this can be achieved through technological innovations. Uh, I'm sure you know much more about those than I do, but there are ways, for instance, to separate the uh, manure more uh, early in the process, all kinds of ways to reduce nitrogen in a, say, a natural way. The other way to go about it, of course, and this has been causing most of the uh, political controversy, is to simply um, force farmers to quit and expropriate their farms, uh, pay them a good sum of money, but essentially make sure that even more farmers uh, quit their business and uh, and take their cows with them. Are, are this mob Eurosceptics? Um Yes, and this is mostly because it's often framed as if it's an issue that is caused by, caused by Brussels. Now, it's of course true that the European Commission and the European Union has been uh, doing a lot to um, introduce climate legislation, to set uh, deadlines and targets. But most of this really is the Dutch government's own doing. It's been the Dutch government that for the longest time has been supporting farmers to, to, to grow ever bigger. And now it's the same Dutch government that, because of a Dutch court ruling, finally has to do something about that. Obviously, European rules do play a bit of a, a role, which is pretty much the case with anything in any European country. But it's 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 something that is um, it's not as European as you might think. But on the other hand, European governments are looking at this because they think that it could very well be something of a prelude for uh, popular protests that they might face in their own country. Let's remember the word agriculture contains the word culture, and it's been a very <laughs> important part of Netherlands' history. And I know very much a part of national pride because it, the way it coped with uh, the Second World War. That's correct. Uh, and I think the um, one of the reasons that this has, has been able to grow so big is also that Part of it really is that romantic image of the farmer with a couple of cows and uh, a few chickens just hurting their business. Whereas on the other hand, many farmers now are uh, multimillionaires running a large business. Uh, many of the, those romantic farmers have long disappeared because they've been bought out by their neighbors to, to grow so big, right? like what we talked about before, the industrial agricultural sector. Uh, that's not just about farmers, but it's just as much about um, corporations that are in charge of uh, transport, uh, cattle transport, uh, other companies that are involved in uh, uh, animal feed. So it's it's really become much much more than, uh, than those proverbial tulips and windmills and uh, the cute cow with that farmer next to him. Finally, and we've only got seconds left, What's the future of Dutch politics looking like? To be honest, I've always learned that I should never make political predictions. <laughs> uh, so I won't go that far, but I will say that it's, it's very much not looking good for uh, the Dutch government at this moment um, because they are still trying to figure out an answer to, to this new upset party. Uh, and they know that the rest of, of Europe is looking at them because they might be facing uh, a battle just like theirs. Rick, thanks for coming on. Rick Ruter, political reporter with NRC newspaper, and he joined us from The Hague. Coming up, the mystery of fairy circles in the Australian desert. Australia's central and western deserts are an awe-inspiring place where life has evolved in the most challenging of conditions. Viewed from the air, the northwestern Pilbara region in WA is a vast patchwork of red earth and grasses. But in a few rare locations, you might spot a collection of perfectly round circles of sand like polka dots, evenly spread across the landscape, like some sort of intentional artwork or design. Known as, yes, fairy circles, 
They've been sources of great mystery. But uh, new cross-cultural research involving traditional owners and uh, Western scientists have just made an intriguing breakthrough. My guest is Dr Fiona Walsh, an ecologist and ethnographer who spent her life living and working in Australia's central and western deserts. And she joins me now from Arenda country in Alice Springs. Welcome to our Little Wireless program. For those who aren't familiar with the uh, northwestern desert region, can you uh, paint a picture of the landscape? Thanks, Philip. Uh, yeah, these are vast landscapes. They're grasslands on sand plains with red sand dunes, huge, big, vivid skies and spinifex fields that, when they're burnt, turn into wheat fields of productive food grasses, which becomes part of our story further down the line. And they're peopled landscapes. They're places where Madhu and their neighbours have lived for 50,000 years and more. I understand that uh, similar circles have been discovered elsewhere, in Africa, for example. In southern Africa, in Namibia and Angola, there's long been a debate that harks back to the 1970s about the causes of these fairy circles, as they're called there, and I can't, I don't know the local language names for them, and that it was that debate that was transferred, translocated to, to the Pilbara in Western Australia. <laughs> In introducing you, I was talking about the, the crop circle fad and that uh, produced all sorts of the most amazing theories and conspiracy theories. Have the fairy circles had the same effect? I, I think the word, I didn't know the word fairy circle until 2016. Uh, I recognised the pattern when it was published in the ABC and other places worldwide. Um, as something that Madhu had talked about as Linji. Madhu have their own very sophisticated knowledge about these, these circles, which turn out also to be very widespread. The pattern that's iconic or stereotypical is near Newman in Western Australia, but what it's revealed to us is that it spans Western Australia, the Northern Territory and South Australia at mass scale. There are billions of these spots in the landscape. I understand that uh, you can sometimes follow them along the uh, the Canning Stock Route. You can bump over them, I think, along the Canning Stock Route. Um, yeah, no, that's a really great geographical anchor point. So the Stock Route has the sand dune corridors and the Termitaria, the termite pavements, as we understand them to be, and Madhu have told us that, um, they they occur in those lovely swales between the dunes um, and then on the sand plains adjacent to the dune fields. Let the record show that in 2002 the Madhu were awarded native title rights over well, almost 14 million hectares of the western deserts. That's right. And and within that is Madhu occupying and, and knowing that country inside out continuously, including what some people might call sort of rubbish country or country with no uses. Those spinifex sand plains for Madhu were really productive habitats. They they work them to through fire and other methods to enhance the productivity. Within the landscapes, the fairy circles, the so-called, or the linji in, in Madhu, Maduwanka, are places where women would bring seed and thresh the seed, hit it, hit it, hit it on the pavement to help clean and process the seed that then became the, the cooked breads that fed their children and, and families. So these were like benches, working places, threshing floors within a landscape, as well as lots of other uses. Now, in 2016, a group of researchers offered one hypothesis to these uh, mysterious circles. What was the theory then? Yes. So in 2016, there was a, a group of German-Israeli-Australians who published a, a paper in a journal, International Science Journal, that alleged to have discovered fairy circles in, in the Pilbara. Uh, and that 
piqued our curiosity and with some puzzlement and a bit of indignation, we have followed that story on and off since 2016 to now. To my understanding, their theory was that the the bare areas were left by plants. It was part of a plant self-organisation theory and the, the bareness allowed plants to share water and nutrients amongst themselves. They ex- specifically excluded termites as a key factor in the formation of the bare areas, which ran contrary to what I'd learnt from Madhu in the, the 1980s. You were not convinced though, Fiona? I was puzzled um, and a bit indignant, partly because of their titling of discovery. It's, as you said, it's hard to discover something at a macro scale within a region that's been occupied so intensely for so long. Um, And it ran, when I saw the patterns that were shown in the beautiful photographs of them, it ran contrary to what I'd learnt from Madhu when I'd been a a young woman who was out footwalking, hunting, gathering with Madhu. Well, of course, you, you had day. you had that great advantage that you'd been working with the Madhu people for over thirty years. I I had I, I was I'm very fortunate in that, and um, it's changed my life for the better in the most profound sort of way. I can't imagine a life any other way, really. Um, and other Aboriginal groups sort of since. Um, and, and Madhu in the 80s were living on outstations, continuing their customary harvest, going out collecting the foods that they ate, that, that they brought home to eat. And it was in the con- and they were also demonstrating some of their older practices to their younger ones. And so on one trip, I was out with Winter Williams and her granddaughter, Carol Milanka, who's one of the co-authors of our paper. Um, and Winter wanted to show Carol how she used this lingy surface. She asked Carol to grab a broom, a little bush broom, and Carol swept the thin veneer of sand off the top. And then Winter piled the, the wanganu seed onto the, the native woolly butt seed onto the pavement and then pounded it with a stone, which helps separate the seeds from the glooms that it sits within. So it does have a connection to your crop story. These are madu crops. <laughs> Look, take us back to the 1980s, Fiona, when you first started work, working with the First Nations people in this part of Australia. What brought you there? Uh, curiosity again. I, I, was, I had studied zoology and botany and always felt this discontent about the exclusion of people. There was nothing about to learn about the relationships between people and plants or people and animals. Um, There was an opportunity to volunteer on an archaeological survey with Peter Veth and I, I took that opportunity and went out and I felt like I met kindred spirits, people who loved the detail and the nuances and the beauty of the creatures that that lived in their landscape that sort of echoed for me who already had a passion for arid landscapes. Um, And I found myself, my own eyes transforming. I think, to be honest, when I initially, I remember that first drive, going along a dusty bush track out to, to Bangor and thinking, wow, this is a really monotonous landscape. Um, But as I did that trip, time after time after time, the landscape and its creatures, its plants started to reveal themselves as, oh, there's Jalanpinpa, there's Wangunu, there's the Kanjamara patch. I started to visually tune in to the riches that that Madhu sought and and shared and tended in that landscape. You use the term, and I think a very apt one, of two-way science. I actually prefer two-way knowledge. Um, I was a scientist at CSRO for 12 years and have co-written a book on two-way, so-called two-way science. And I have a very particular reason why I prefer two-way knowledge. Um, But two-way knowledge is a sharing of information that flows. It's very easy for science and scientists to to dominate and to set agendas and to 
run with their particular sort of numerical and quantitative methods. But as this study's found, there is as much, if not more, to be learnt by giving voice and space and understanding a complexity that sits within Aboriginal people's knowledge. Now, two-way knowledge leads to a profound change of view. Mm. Uh, it has disproved the 2016 theory. What has it revealed? Okay, so we collectively, the Madhu, Walpuri and, and scientists' co-authorship, uh, reveal what Madhu and Walpuri have always known, that these spots, the so-called fairy circles or Linji, are occupied by termites. They're the, the homes, the Nora, the camp that, that termites live in. We've now come to understand completely new things about desert ecology that even my venerable colleague Steve Morton was unfamiliar with. Um, Steve's just written a book called Desert Landscapes. And it's also revealed the profound significance of the humble termite within Aboriginal pre-colonial economies and life that still gets painted and honoured in various ways today. There's a beautiful story from Alice Numpijimpa, who's one of our co-authors, of seeing the the flying form of the termites and crying for her skin brother. Um, so these and these creatures still get painted in the artworks of Walukalangu and various Western Desert people. I don't think the termites are all that humble, and I know you use <laughs> the adjective uh, with a touch of irony. One mm. thinks of their architectural gifts with with those marvellous, magnetically aligned mounds. But can you understand their architecture in creating these polka dot patterns in the landscape? No, that's the, that's the you know, one of the, the million dollar questions, Philip. Um, we're working with Theo Evans, who's a professor at UWA and an international termite expert. And, you know, that would is one of the, the big questions of how have these insects so uniformly space them across a, a landscape. There's the architecture that you talk about at that landscape scale, but then once you look within the pavements, which are concrete hard, incredibly structured with this beautiful sort of smooth surface that's like, is like concrete to crowbar into it. But then when you look at their galleries and their tunnels and the chaff chambers and there's this whole microcosm, there's a city of insects who are living under at least some of these these structures. We don't know how old they are. That's one of the big questions. Um, there's there's lots of just straight ecology questions that unravel from this, this investigation. Now, Fiona, as you've mentioned, the research would not have been possible with the, without uh, the First Nations people who shared their knowledge. Let's hear now from one of your collaborators, Desmond Taylor. Here's Desmond explaining the life of the underground termites. My name is Desmond Taylor. I'm a Burunga man from the Kalamilu National Park area in Western Australia. The ants were were builders. They were creating their headquarters down below in the ferry circles. They were building their homes. Once the structure was removed, then the people would come and bring their bush food together on the ferry circle and cook or grind seed cakes because it was a hard surface and it was very good. Now, mysteries pile up. You have to explain to me how the circles are an important source of water. How on earth can that be? Yeah, that's just marvellous. Um, how can it be? Well, first of all, I want to give credit to how this is completely from Aboriginal knowledge and the Wamajari man, Jimmy Pike and Pat Lowe, are possibly the first people to document that. We've since found records in dictionaries and artworks and other sources, and Desmond tells an amazing story about the Great Desert Skink. How it happens, we've been understanding, so with rainfall, good rainfall events, the hard surface 
holds water. So they have a water holding capacity. And there's Professor Carolyn Oldham, who's a co-author on the paper with Matilda Nelson, who've been investigating this. And when Maddie was looking uh, in the Pilbara last year, we see that in the grasses that aggregate around the perimeter of the, the circle, there's a thick sand uh, aggregation that the, the sand builds up under the grasses and that forms like the walls, almost like a kid's paddling pool is the metaphor. It's deep <laughs> enough to hold a few millimetres of water. Okay, We poured see. 80 litres on one a, until it overflowed, enough to, for a person to lie down and drink and plenty enough, as Alice and Lee say. You mentioned the great desert skink. Here's uh, Desmond again explaining how the skinks use the fairy circles. Mulyamigi is a endangered species that lives in great sandy desert regions of Western Australia. And my parents have told me the stories that during the rainy season, the areas where the Mulyamigi or the great desert skink lives, the area will be filled up with water and the Mulyamidi would come out of the burrows and give birth to the children of the Mulyamidi. So they give birth to them in the water. Now, working with the First Nations people has been the key to, to better understand these circles. Here's Desmond again offering some advice to scientists who want to learn more about Australian deserts. Please come and work with Indigenous people who will give you Indigenous knowledge and and also learn how to make the right balance between non-Aboriginal and Indigenous people. Making things right or better ways of working together is important because, um, because we have our own knowledge and we want to share that with a wider community. Wise words indeed. Fiona, thanks for that. It's been a magical encounter. Thank you. It's a really big story. I'd love to. Um, if you know anyone who wants to do a good docu- documentary, Philip, it's it's waiting for a really great Absolutely established is. producer. Is. My guest has been Dr Fiona Walsh, co-author of the fascinating cross-cultural research into the fairy circles of the Pilbara Desert on Mardu country. And on our next, beloved listeners, a special edition of the program for Anzac Day. We uh, reflect on Australia's engagement in East Timor from 1999, and we go back further in time to learn how First Nation warriors employed uh, remarkable resistance strategies during Australia's frontier wars. See you then. Listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio, and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.